0: Grab your Bibles, uh, flip open to the Gospel of John, all right? I'm going to learn from Big John today, uh, chapter 18 specifically. In this whole series of different people meeting Jesus throughout the Gospels, we're looking at a whole crowd that kind of lost control. And so we're going to be meeting Jesus when everything is going wrong, at least according to our standards. Uh, a lot of times we forget everything's going according to plan When it goes to God's perspective, not that he enjoys the inconvenience of pain and suffering and torment and sorrow, but he understands that those are some bumps along the road to his ultimate uh, perfect will. And we're going to experience stuff because we live in a fallen world riddled by sin. And half the time we're the ones creating our own bumps in the road. But hey, you know what? Uh, The Lord is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to lead us. So I'm in Matthew. Apologies. Mark, Luke, and then John. What chapter? 18. 18. All right. Look at the person next to you and say hi. And ask him what's your name? If you didn't answer, you should answer. Tell them your name. Be nice. Name is Sup. All right. Uh, so look, here's the deal. I think you guys can all pass this test. You all probably know the answer to this question. And but can you need to be loud and confident, okay? Yes. No, like I think this is the end. Like, come on, give it to me. Like you got a beard, all right, ladies? <laughs> um, who is always in control? God, God Jesus will accept both answers today. God is always in control, okay? Say it real loud. God is always in control. Go. God is always in control. Even when he doesn't look like it? Yeah. No, I'm at, are you are you sure? All right, let's let's find out. And uh, before we read into this and pray, the the setup, and you guys know what today is, right? I know you asked, it's the 25th, it's a Sunday, it's 2018, it's March, Um, but today is also what's known as Palm Sunday. It's the day that we celebrate where Jesus began to ride triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem, and it's kind of like this big domino that begins... A series of events throughout the week that would lead to not only Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus, but Sunday morning, the resurrection of him from the dead. And so this day is pretty significant. And what we're looking at together is a few days past what this is in history, but it would begin with Jesus riding in on that donkey, people beginning to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, meaning God, you finally come to save us. They're proclaiming that Jesus, you're the savior. And they begin to worship him in public on this road, And they go down and some unique things begin to take place. And this is one of those between riding down the donkey and being crucified on the cross. We're introduced to the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that was oftentimes and repetitiously visited by Jesus and the disciples, a very familiar place. Uh, Jesus would have been here praying that night after Judas left in the upper room. They have the last supper together. Before it finishes, Judas, one of the disciples, takes off to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus takes his guys and they go out into the olive trees and they begin to pray. And it's one of the prayers that most people are quite familiar with where Jesus begins to pray so intensely that his sweat begins to drop like blood. He's so thick and he's in torment and agony and he prays basically, God, if there's any other way, if there's a plan B, if there's any other way to save humanity from their sins... Let's go with plan B. But if not, if this is the only way, then thy will be done, not mine. And he gets up and he gathers together the 11 disciples that are left. And what we find here in John chapter 18 is them beginning to exit and something unique takes place. We're going to read through a couple verses together and then we'll pray and learn something. All right? John chapter 18, starting in verse number one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, wherever there where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, this massive military mob of people and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew, or it means they were pushed and fell back to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, let my disciples go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. In verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup or basically accept the responsibility which my father has given me? Let's pray. God, we come to you in all sincerity, asking, Lord, that you'd give us teachable hearts right now. There's so much going on in these handful of verses. If we would have been there that night, who knows which side of the story we would have been on? Who knows how we would have reacted? But, Lord, we'll react today. We'll decide today to trust or not to trust to believe and to let go, or to try and take back what is rightfully yours. And so God, we ask that you would teach us, Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, and Lord, you would mold and shape this very moment, in Jesus' name, amen. It's a unique story, I hope it's one that you never get bored of. And if I can encourage you as just your big brother in the Lord, if you ever come to a part of the Bible where you're like, oh, I know this story, read it again. There's always things in there where if you ever become familiar and you feel like, oh, I know this part of the Bible, you've lost a bit of reverence for it, read it again go through it a little slower, look at it from a different perspective, because the word of God is never tired or exhausted or depleted, it never runs out, it's always alive and living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, it will always cut you to the heart, and this story, I'm not sure if you've heard it or not heard it, but it is as important as anything else, Jesus now leaving and coming through the garden, all these olive trees, it's the dead of night, this mob of warriors comes up to him with Judas, who was with Jesus for close to three years, maybe a little more, maybe be a little less. We don't know exactly, but he was with them. All of a sudden betrays him. People are getting knocked down to the ground. Peter's pulling out a sword and Jesus is calm, cool, and collected the entire time. Four things specifically I think it's worth looking at today as we crawl through this story, but the enemy always attacks in familiar places. He just does. It's frustrating. It's annoying. But the enemy always seems to attack in familiar places. Even in our lives, we can look, when does temptation and and things become the biggest struggle? When you're home alone or you're in your room and your thoughts are free to roam and wander, and the different doubts and fears can creep in. It's not when you're outside of your comfort zone. You're on guard. You've got your armor on. It's when you get home and you kick your feet up and all of a sudden your mind begins to wander. Or it's when you're with your friends, and you're relaxed, and you're comfortable, and so you might accidentally follow in their ways and do what they do, versus when you're with strangers, you're very careful about the decisions you make. It's familiarity that sometimes we put our guard down. In this place, the enemy attacks. Jesus, it says in verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, he he knew where Jesus would be. How? Jesus often met there with his disciples. They would come there consistently. This is a place where they would sit together and talk together, and he would teach them intimate, close, important things, and they would pray together. And this is where Judas knew to find him, because it was a familiar place. Be careful of familiar places, because once you get comfortable and think, oh, this doesn't matter anymore, you're probably about to be entered into a bit of a war. It always matters. But God is always in control, right? God's always in control. There's never a time where Jesus isn't calm, cool, and collected. He's got this whole thing under control. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 to 58. Look, when do we give up? When do we throw in the towel? When do we lose our minds and run around like chickens with their head cut off? Like never. That's the answer. We trust that God's in control, even when things are not working out the right way. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, that we end up victorious. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord, Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that, meaning because God's going to allow you to triumph, because God's going to give you victory, because God's going to make you come through this uh, in a way that is overcoming, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be immovable. Don't be shaken. Don't turn and run. Don't hide. Stand your ground. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, and here's the point, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In vain, what do you mean? There's no emptiness to it all, that whatever you do with the Lord in mind carries weight, carries value to it. You'll never make a decision where you're trusting God and then a few days later be like, I shouldn't have trusted the Lord with that. You'll never do that. You can trust people and be like, oh, I shouldn't have trusted them with that secret. Oh, I shouldn't have trusted them with that bit of information. I shouldn't have let them influence me to rebel against my mom and dad or to lie to my grandparents or whatever. And we can give people certain things in our life. We can trust people. We can do things and learn to regret it. You will never, never, never do something for the Lord and regret it. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Revelation chapter 3, I love this, verse 11. It's, It's exciting and scary at the same time. Jesus tells the church, he says, behold, I am coming quickly. Now that doesn't mean he's coming immediately. It means he's coming quickly. What's the difference? Immediately means like he's standing outside the front door, he'll be here in about half a second. Quickly is like when the cops show up on scene to this crazy crime that's been committed. They come lights and sirens, full speed, come sliding through the parking lot, jump out, guns drawn, like they came quick. They were rushing in. Jesus says, when I come, I'm not just going to come strolling along. He's going to be there, and he's going to come quickly. And he says, look, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Why would he say that unless we can forfeit things to other people? God says, I want you to be victorious. I want you to overcome. I want you to have these things in your life. I want you to be blessed. But don't forfeit it to other people. That's insane. You ever been part of a sports team that had to forfeit a game? maybe enough people didn't show up and so you literally couldn't play. You just, you had to like just voluntarily quit. That's what we do when we sin. We voluntarily quit on God for the moment. We just give up. He says, hold fast. What are they offering you that looks so good? Don't let them take your crown, meaning your reward, uh, your position, your blessings. Don't let them rob you for some momentary satisfaction. Like stick fast with it i'm coming quick i'll be right there hold on just a little bit longer but when things go crazy even in places of familiarity like we see here in the garden god is in control he's totally got it the one person that seems to be able just to stand his ground and be fairly relaxed is jesus he's got it everyone else freaks out including first of all the soldiers says that he sent a detachment. This isn't like one bodyguard or an assistant, a detachment of troops. We're talking about a massive military force that's sent with Judas and multiple other guys, and they comes with what? Swords, says weapons, and clubs, and spears, and all this wild armament. This is what you would do when you were seeking out a criminal, someone who stole or killed. This was a pursuit of someone who was guilty of a real crime. And they come into the garden being led by Judas and Jesus and the disciples are there. And it's amazing. But when the world is against God, which it always will be, God is in control. The world will always be against God, okay? When the world is against God, God is always in control. How can you say the world will always be against God? Easy. Jesus said it. You can say anything with confidence if Jesus said it first. When did you say that? Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will find it. But narrow and difficult is the way that leads to everlasting life, and very few will find or choose to go down that path. But don't worry, don't freak out. When everyone is against God, it's fine. God's still in control. He's not like, oh no, they're all against me. What am I gonna, do? he's like, look, I made you. You know, your mama always says like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Like she can say that with a bit of authority, but really it's God saying. He's like, I made you, I can take you out. He's in control. He's got it. It's funny, in the Bible, we're likened to sheep, right? Sheep. Not the most beautiful of creatures. This one's a little cuter, so, right, make the girls all, yeah, all right. But there's always sheep. There's It's nighttime, okay? They're in the garden. It's at nighttime, plus the black background, so roll with it. We're called sheep. That's not a flattering statement. It is if you understand the relationship a sheep has with a shepherd, but when it comes to natural instincts, it's not a flattering statement at all. Without shepherds, sheep die for multiple reasons. Bugs will crawl up in their nose and eat their brain. True story. If it rains and their wool hasn't been sheared, they'll get so heavy that their legs collapse and they just sit there and starve to death and die. They need the shepherd. But here's the funniest part. You have all either heard it in movies or maybe even been asked by your parents, oh, how come all your, oh, just because everyone's doing it, that's why you did it? Oh, if your friends jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? You guys have heard that saying, right? Yeah, we've all heard that saying. And then there's always a handful of smart Alex who are like, yes, I would. You're like, you just proved my point. Sheep are dumb enough to actually do that. You can have two, three, four hundred sheep up on this mountaintop and they're grazing nice green. And here comes Tom the sheep, like you pretty. And then Bob comes over, he's like, Where would Tom go? And then here comes Jim. Where Jim? And they'll literally one after another. Wouldn't they learn after like 10 sheep? Nope. How about a hundred? No, they'll just one after another, just land on top of each other till their own death. They'll literally follow their friends off the cliff. Don't think for a moment, guys. When the whole world's against God, you better not be. It can be extreme things like we've learned throughout history. Look at Hitler and the Nazis and those that just went along with the show. You can't murder innocent people because you don't like what nationality they are. You can't do that. That's wrong. I don't care what everyone else is doing. You can't make racist comments just because everyone thinks it's funny. It's the cultural norm now to kind of mock it. I'm only kidding, but half sort of. I don't care what everyone else is doing. You follow Jesus. Broad is the road, and many are on it that leads to destruction. It can be even smaller things. It can be smaller things like that movie that's going to come out a couple months from now or a year from now or four from now. And even your Christian friends are like, come on, man, let's go see it. And you're like, dude, that, heck no, that's wrong. I think your mom will let you see it. I, look At this point, even if my mom said, yes, I know my father in heaven says, no, I'm not going. Broad is the road, guys, but you're to be on the narrow one, which means sometimes you'll have to be part of the minority, and you've got to be okay with that. When the world's against God, God's in control. He always is. He always has been. He always will be. A couple things that are worth noting in this whole thing, this mob that shows up, the detachment of soldiers, here's the deal, okay? One, the attack had more support than the defense, the attack had more support than the defense. They just did. So what? Did Jesus run away? Not at all. Did Jesus hide behind the disciples? Help, guys, you're my bodyguards. Stand in front of me. I'm going to hide behind you. Take him out. Not at all. He steps through them. He comes forward on his own. Says, hi, nice to meet you. Looks like you guys are serious business, man. Torches and clubs and swords and spears, armament. This is what you do for a criminal. What? Who are you looking for? They're like, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. I know that guy. (laughs) I know that guy. They knew the name, but not the face. Isn't it interesting? Jesus steps out voluntarily. Hey, how are you guys doing? You guys are tough. Who are you looking for? They knew the name, but not the face. I wonder how many people in the world know the traditional stories of the Bible. They know about Christmas and Easter. They know about the name of Jesus. They know him as a character. They know him as a religious figure. They know him as a great role model for life. But they don't know him. They've never entered into a relationship with him. Their prayers are just robotic for the cheeseburger they're about to eat. They're not pleas of desperation or gratitude. And so Jesus steps out, and look, they knew the name, but not the face. Jesus is still in control. He says, I'm he. And it says, it's interesting, you read all the accounts that they were literally pushed back by whatever force is going on here. I can't perfectly describe to you guys, but he says, I'm him, I'm Jesus, I'm who you're looking for, I am he. Is it because in that moment, his divine nature was exposed and the power of God literally just knocked him to the ground? Maybe it's possible. Is it that he's letting them know as Jewish people uh, amongst the Roman guards, he says, look, I am he. It's the same phrase that would have been used in Exodus uh, to set the nation of Israel free. And he says, I am he. I am the one who led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Maybe, maybe that's it. I don't know. But what I do know is God's in control and he's got this. Now the enemy's on the ground. The mob, the majority, has no power. And they begin to get up and realize something that even though they're the majority, Jesus has control, Jesus has the power. Proverbs chapter 30. Verse four says, who has ascended into heaven? Not me, I haven't. you been there? You haven't gone there? You don't have the power to go up to heaven and, or come back down. Who has gathered the wind in his fist and bound the waters in his garment? Look, I can't control the temperature in my own house half the time. God controls the weather and all creation. Who has established the ends of the earth and what is his name and what is his son's name if you know? But a name's not enough. You gotta know him. Isaiah chapter 40 says, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes. He says, look at, look at what I've made. Look what I've done. He's created these things. Who brings out their hosts, the stars, the galaxies, the planets by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. That Jesus, he's in control. He created all things. He sustains all things. Just look around. It's awesome. Uh, Psalm 66, verse 7 says, he rules by his power forever. It's awesome. It means whatever comes over the next days, weeks, months, and years of your life, God's in control. He's got it. He's got you covered, okay? Isaiah 40, verse 10 says, my counsel shall stand. This is kind of God giving us a heads up. It's kind of like, well, okay, like, I'm glad you think you've got some say here, but you just sit down and listen to me now. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. If we ever forget who's in control, we need to remember pretty quickly, God says, I am. God says, I'm in control, you are not. So make sure you're standing on the right side of this whole thing. Jesus wanted another way out. Didn't he pray? Lord, if there's another way, Let this cup, this portion of responsibility pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Within the pain and the death would be the forgiveness of our sins. So, so far, we know this, right? God's in control. Tell your friend, real quick, one more time God's in control. He's got you. He's totally got you. So, real quick, when the world is against God, who's in control? God, right? God's in control, plain and simple. What about the next thing? Well, all right, let's move on. When our friends turn against God. What do you mean when our friends do? My friends would never. Can you control your friends? Not a bit. All you can control is the decisions you make, and that's all the influence you have. You can't even control what happens to you. You can just control what you do with it. When our friends turn against God. See, Judas wasn't this random guy. Jesus picked him. He was amongst the 12 for years. They, were together. they sacrificed and they uh, labored and they endured and they ministered and they taught and they, they were together. These guys were together. Imagine what the disciples felt. They see the military coming through the, the olive trees. They see the swords and they see the torches. And then they see Judas. Like What are you, what are you doing here? Judas, what are you doing? You'll feel at times in life, like, dude, what are you doing? People that you know and care about and love and have spent time with, what are you doing? But don't forget, Jesus is still in control. A disciple led the assault. We shouldn't be terribly surprised. Like, oh my gosh, what's going on? I mean, after all, wasn't Satan one of the angels in heaven? If an angel in the presence of God can fall and turn his back against the Lord, then certainly any one of us sin-riddled people can, for sure. The Bible's never highlighted our faithfulness. It's just directed to God's faithfulness. Betrayal does not always have on an evil face. It doesn't. It doesn't always look scary, always look deceptive. In fact, it usually looks pretty pleasant, kind, and sometimes familiar. So not only was it a familiar place, but now it's a familiar person. Someone that everyone knew. Jesus, if you read Luke's account in chapter 22, Jesus says, What are you doing, Judas? See, back then, a greeting, when you come in, hopefully you guys know this, when your friends come in, if they have a jacket, like, Oh, hey, can I take your jacket for you? Oh, a jacket, like a glass of water? How about a bag of chips? I don't know, whatever. Like, you greet them with something friendly that shows and uh, illustrates, like, Oh, I care about you. You're welcome in my home. Come on in. Back then, they would. When you came in, it wasn't just a hug. You get like a kiss on the cheek. You know, like Italian mobsters, like right? like they weren't Italian. They're Jewish, but it's the same. That's what I see in my mind. I don't know. I see a bunch of an Italian grandma, like like. So that's how they would greet each other back then during the biblical times, and maybe if you still go to Italy, I don't know. Haven't been there. But Judas comes up. It's an expression of endearment, of compassion, of welcome, of friendship of love, and Judas comes up to Jesus and kisses him on the cheeks, expressing, you're my friend, and I love you, and I care about you, and you're welcome in my life, and Jesus says, really? You're gonna betray me with an expression of love and friendship? That's what you're gonna stab me in the back with? Well, the answer was yes. He didn't throw a rock. He didn't point him out. He went and deceptively, or not so deceptively, gave him that welcoming expression of love. Proverbs 27, verse 6, it tells us, faithful, right, are the wounds of a friend. I'm sorry. But the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. People that are willing to flatter you to your face are usually the ones that'll turn their back on you when you least expect it. I'm not saying any of your friends that are nice, like, oh, I don't trust any of you now. Like, don't do that, okay? Your friend calls, like, hey, wanna hang out? Oh, I know what you're gonna do. You're like, what, what? Like, I'm just saying, when people are overly, ambitiously kind, be careful, especially in odd settings. This was not the time or place to like randomly walk up to Jesus and be like, hey, how you doing, buddy? Mwah! Like, Judas, what are you doing? There's a Roman military mob behind you. What's going on? The time and place. Betrayal does not always have on an evil face. But Jesus was not surprised. Is Jesus still in control? Of course he is. He's always in control. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? In John chapter 13, a few uh, chapters prior to what we're reading, you find out a couple things, okay? One of them, In John 13, 11, it says, he knew who would betray him. Jesus knew it was Judas. Uh, A couple verses later, verse 18 says, I know whom I've chosen. Jesus didn't just gamble and throw the dice or like, it was a crowd of people. Like, I need 12 disciples and close his eyes and start spinning. Like, okay, you, 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 you. It's like getting donuts. How many did I pick? Nine. Okay, three more. You, you. Like, it's it's not how he picked them. He says, oh, I, I knew Judas when I picked him. Isn't that crazy? I know whom I've chosen. I know what he's up to, and I know why he's here. I know it all. So look, when our friends turn against God, isn't God still in control? Right? He's still in control. When everything else is falling apart, he's totally still in control. Last thing we'll look at is the disciples. They did it right. Didn't they do it right? Nope. They did it honorable. They did it in a way that as a guy, you're kind of like, yeah, man, my warriors, my 11 disciples, they stood strong. They were faithful, but they still blew it. And so here's the question. When you're in familiar places and things aren't working out right, God's still in control. And when the world goes against God and it's the broad way and many are on it, God is still in control. And even when your friends maybe turn their back and walk away on God, God's still in control. But what about when you blow it? What about when you're the one that messes up? Is God still in control? Take a look. Starting in verse 10. It says, then, right after all this, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given Interesting statements that he makes, interesting portion here. If you read the other accounts and you lay them over, Luke chapter 22. If you guys want to go read the other part of the story, read Luke 22. It gives the another perspective. You put the two together and you get a great, clear picture of what's going on. But what you find out is while Jesus steps... Be- between the disciples, and he goes, hey, who are you guys looking for? And they say, we're looking for uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And that begins to happen. The disciples must have been off to the side near another tree, like, okay, Peter, what are we going to do? And Peter's like, man, I don't know, but we're going to save them. Let's fight these guys. And like, Peter, that's a whole Roman military mob, man. I think we could do it. I have a sword, okay? It'll be all right. I got, well, dude, we could do this. And there's a stick. Come on. And, and eventually, they're all, Peter's idea, he leads the charge, but they're all actually willing to fight. All 11 are like, all right, we can take them down. Appreciate the faith. That's pretty cool. 11 guys, Roman mob. But they're like, we could do it. Okay, we could do it. And they come back, and they may have missed what had gone on over here, and the the soldiers are getting back up, dusting themselves off. And Jesus now, he's like, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, I already told you, I'm he. And then Judas steps up, betrays him with a kiss. Jesus whispers, really, Judas? This is how it's going to go, huh? And then Peter. I don't know if he jumps the gun. I don't know if he was the signal. I don't know. But he pulls out his sword and he goes after somebody, misses his head, takes off his ear, and it begins. Almost. Jesus, somehow, still in control. Don't you think a whole mob would tackle Peter and kill him? Why didn't that happen? Jesus is in control. And so Jesus steps in, stops the whole situation, says, Peter, put your sword back, please. This is not the time. This is not the time. He encourages them in two things. One, don't get pulled in. Don't get pulled into the chaos. Don't get pulled into the corruption. Don't get pulled into the fear or the worry or the manipulation. Don't get pulled in. Peter, put your sword away. But then he reminds him of something else. Again, read the other gospel account. He says, don't you know, I could call down legions, 12 legions of angels, Peter. He warns him, don't get pulled in. And then he reminds him, I'm in control. I've got this. 12, how many is 12 legions? 80,000 warring angels from heaven could come down and obliterate the entire city if Jesus wanted. It would have been that easy. Peter, I don't need you. I have an angelic host of warriors. Calm down. I'm in control. And so what about when you mess up? What about when I mess up? Is God still in control? Because see, sometimes that's where we begin to, to take it back and we feel like we have to do something to get God to love us again. We have to do something to pay off the penalty of our sin. We feel like we've somehow now finally done something that God couldn't forgive. God could forgive the mob. God could forgive Judas. God could forgive, you just can't forgive me. It's not true. Not a bit. Peter goes for it, but he goes for it in the wrong way. This is for all of us, I would imagine, but doubly for us gentlemen. Uh, Sometimes the courageous response isn't the correct one. Okay? Sometimes a courageous response isn't the correct one. Sometimes you can be bold and you can be aggressive, you can stand your ground, and that's not what you were supposed to do. Sometimes letting God handle the situation is the right response. Sometimes there's things that are broken that you and I just can't fix and that we let the Lord have it. The Bible says there's a time to kill and a time to heal Old Testament truth. There's a time for everything. There's a time to break down and a time to build up. Peter, though his response was admirable, it was wrong. Don't get pulled into the drama. I love what 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful and cannot deny himself. So then what's the deal here? Well, the deal here is somewhere between riding down on a donkey and people worshiping, saying, Jesus, you finally come to save Lord, you've arrived. And then they go down into the city and some unique things begin to take place. And now they have supper in the upper room and Judas is found out as the betrayer and he leaves and Jesus goes into the Mount uh, of Olives and they're praying there. And he prays, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he comes out into a familiar place and everything falls apart. His own friend betrays him. The world is against him. But he's 100% in control. The Bible talks about Jesus as being the good shepherd, the one that would leave the 99, in fact, even lay down his own life for the sheep. No matter what, you and I are to trust the Lord 100%. Ephesians 6.10, it says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Sometimes you and I aren't called to fight. Sometimes we're called to let the Lord handle the situation. It's an amazing story. It's not over here because a little while after this, he's tried, disciples split, Peter blows it again. They crucify Jesus, but on Easter Sunday, he rises again, taking back the victory over sin and death. He's always in control. He's always in control. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what's going to go on in the future, but I know this, God can handle it. Just make sure you respond the right way. You guys can close your Bibles. We're going to pray and worship here in a minute. But I wanna encourage you guys to just think even through worship, just a little bit differently, okay? Think about your life just a little bit differently or more clearly for a moment. If every action, everything you did, there's a messenger, right? Your guardian angel was there and, whoa, did you see that? Gets back to heaven and runs down the hallway, click, 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 click. God, what? You should've seen it, man. You should've seen what Tim did. What'd Tim do? Tim was getting all angry. This guy was giving him a hard time. And Tim, I could see he was gonna punch that guy out. And he didn't! Woo, victory! Like He didn't do it. Or hey, someone was gossiping and backbiting and slandering and making, you know, Susie or what some girl feel horrible. But she didn't believe it. She believed that your word says she's been loved with an everlasting love. I don't know. And even when we worship, can you imagine right now? Here's the deal for a minute right now. When we worship, I don't know how this works exactly, but there's angels in heaven and they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as we begin to sing, every time we begin to sing, it says that those praises rise before the Lord. And if there is a hallway in heaven, imagine, right, there's worship going on, the angels are there, and then all of a sudden you hear this noise echoing down the hallway, and they're like, what, what is that? What is that? And Jesus is like, oh, that's a bunch of junior hires at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. It must be Sunday morning. I can hear them singing. That when we begin to worship, we step into something that's not temporary, it's eternal. It's something that touches literally heaven, that it rises before the Lord. And so that right now, whether maybe you've never sang before, I'm not saying sing to sing. I'm just saying honor the Lord with whatever's in your heart. Because whatever's going on in your life, He's in control. He's got you, okay? Father, we thank you for the fact that you invite us to enter boldly into the throne room of grace. And there we would get mercy in time of need. We never have to hide or fear. We never have to wonder or worry. Just come confidently. God, I thank you that amongst at least this portion of Scripture, it's very clear things will go crazy. But you always seem to have it under control. In Jesus' name, amen.